Turn to John this morning. We come to our time in God's Word. John chapter 3. We're going through this uh, gospel. And we've come to chapter 3. We've come to uh, verses 22 through 30 this morning. It's good to see everyone. I'm glad you are able to join us and continue in this with us. Welcome if you're visiting with us this morning. This is our... our, uh, way of going through a book of the Bible. We take it verse by verse, and this is what we're doing right now in this particular book. This is a unique passage to the book of John. What I mean by that, you don't read this account in any of the other synoptic gospels. The synoptic means similar, mean Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are similar gospels. John is different. Uh, John has events that the others do not have. He has some things similar, at times will be similar, but not the same events. Uh, it's, a, it's laid out differently. It's a different kind of order to it, a different kind of message, really, uh, presents Jesus Christ as God, as deity. That is the main theme of the book. Uh, and one of the uh, main purpose, or the main purpose of the book is found in John chapter 20, that after you've read these things, you might believe in his name. So it's very evangelistic in that sense. In John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, as Charlie mentioned and as, as he was praying, the key verse in this section this morning is verse 30. You know he's talking about Jesus in verse 22, John the Baptist. He's talking about John the Baptist's disciples. And then he comes to this statement in verse 30. He must increase, meaning Christ must increase. John the Baptist is saying this, he must increase, but I must decrease. And this is a text, uh, this passage this morning uh, addresses a very scarce virtue uh, called humility. You don't talk about humility very much. It's not something that is uh, lifted up and uh, put up there as this is virtuous and this is what we should all desire. The opposite of it is pride, by the way. And that's, the Bible, it says, is vile and the cause of all kinds of evil and sin. But humility is what we're talking about in this passage. In Christ, and this is interesting thought to me, but in Christ, spiritual maturity is to a large degree the divine gift, one writer says, of self-forgetfulness. Think about that. Self-forgetfulness. Jesus defines Christianity like this. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The cross being the instrument of death. Take up that instrument of death and follow me. Joel James gave this description I thought was very helpful. He says, Christianity at the very start is a very freeing God-given self-denial, a God-given self-forgetfulness. Biblical Christianity always includes a glorious absence of self-preoccupation. 
We need to put clothes on, he says. When we're cold and when we're hungry, we need to eat. So we have legitimate self-preservation. doesn't stop just because you're converted. But he says the truth is spiritual maturity, maturing in Christ-likeness, is the relentless abandonment of self-focused thinking. Whether it's a high view of self or a low view of self, it doesn't matter. Self-focus, whether it is I am great and I am wonderful, or it's I'm terrible and I'm a nobody. That's self-focus, and that's not Christianity. Christianity, he says, is self-forgetfulness. Completely, he says, contrast that to psychological sanctification of our day, which emphasizes self-esteem and self-focus. Look out for myself. Take care of me, my wants, my desires, what makes me happy. Spiritual maturity, it says, is, he says, is the absence of occupation with self and delightful preoccupation with Christ and others. Self-attention directed toward Christ and toward others. End of quote. I think that is really so contrary to the message you're getting from our culture today. Self-forgetfulness. Amazing to ponder that and think about that. We come to a passage this morning where we find an example of that kind of spiritual maturity in the man John the Baptist. True humility and godly Christian maturity at the same time. In just about every commentary you read about this passage or anything they say about John the Baptist in any of the Gospels, that is the one virtue that just really uh, stands out about him. He's called the greatest man that ever lived by Christ. He says the greatest man that ever lived. And as you look at this passage as just an example this morning, you get some kind of an idea of what made him so great. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. You know this. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. His birth was prophesied in Luke to Elizabeth and Zacharias. You're going to have a child in your old age. John the Baptist will be that child. And he will be the forerunner to the Messiah. He's six months older than Christ. He was uh, born, he's a cousin actually of Christ. And he had a ministry in the wilderness, we're told, that consisted of calling people to repent and to be baptized. The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. And he ate locusts and honey, and he just lived in the wilderness and wore clothes that a prophet would wear because he was the last Old Testament prophet. And so you get sort of the historical setting here in verses 22 through 24 of John chapter 3. It says in verse 22, after these things, just remind you in John, after these things would be the wedding at Cana in chapter 2, water into wine. It would be Jesus, we're told in 2.14 of John, goes to Jerusalem to the feast 
while he's in Jerusalem of Judea, while he's in Jerusalem, he, he overturns the tables in the temple because of the greed and the lack of worship, that, true worship that was going on in the temple. He turns over all the tables. He performs miracles in the city of Jerusalem. We have the night encounter when Nicodemus comes in John chapter 3. And in John chapter 3, the message is you must be born again. And then now we come to this, this passage here. After these things, after those things, um, we now come to the statement where Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. So they're still in Judea. Jerusalem is in Judea. Now they're just going from the urban to the rural. Now they're just going into the, to the countryside of Judea. And notice what they were doing. It says in verse 22, they were spending time. There he was spending time with them and baptizing. Flip over to chapter 4, verse 2, just for a moment. 4, verse 2, just for some clarification on that. It says, although Jesus, 4, 2, Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but the disciples were. Just give some clarification. The tradition that John started, Jesus is doing, and his disciples are doing well, though Jesus is not actually doing the baptism, the baptizing. And then these are the early days of Jesus' ministry. We're told that, go down to verse 24, or back, back in chapter 3. Back in chapter 3, verse 24, we know these are the early days of Jesus' ministry we're talking about here because this was a time before John the Baptist had been thrown into prison. And what's interesting is the synoptic gospels don't include this event because they pick up mostly with the Galilean ministry. We're in Judea right here. This event is not recorded in those as I told you earlier. So we're talking about an early event here. John the Baptist is not in prison yet. He's going to get thrown in prison soon. You remember he offends Herod and Herodias, his wife, by questioning their illegitimate or challenging their illegitimate marriage and eventually going to get his head cut off because they hate, she hates him so much. Different, day, different passage, but that's the future for John the Baptist. Here, that, we're not in that scene at all. This is prior to all of that. Back to verse 23. We see in John, three, John uh, excuse me, 3, verse 23. So you have Jesus in 22 baptizing in the Judean wilderness. And now you have in verse 24, excuse me, verse 23, John was also baptizing an Enon near Salim. So this is probably... It's probably it's very close to where Jesus is. Uh, Anin means spring, so it's a place where there's water. Um, he's baptizing there because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. So John the Baptist is continuing his ministry. Jesus has a ministry going as well. Just a side note, there does seem to be Plenty of water there, a peripheral proof that New Testament baptism was done by immersion. You would not need much water to sprinkle, just saying. But the point is, pouring and sprinkling would not have been what was practiced in the early church or in the, in, by Jesus and his disciples and John the Baptist's disciples. But John played a very important role in the early ministry of Christ. And you have 22 and 23 together there to show we have some overlap going on. 
And that's the point of this passage. There's overlap that is going on. And it doesn't, it's not going to last very long, but this is a transition passage. This is a transition passage from John the Baptist handing off to Jesus. John the Baptist who came to tell people to prepare for Jesus. Now Jesus is here. John the Baptist is going to diminish in terms of his ministry. In fact, he's going to get thrown in jail and be killed. So we're talking about a transition passage. The other thing you pick up in this passage is that there's resistance from John's disciples. John's disciples are not comfortable with this transition, and that is the point of the, a part of the point of this passage, or at least sets the backdrop of this passage to see John's humility and their pride. They are resistant to this transition, as you're going to see in just a moment. John handles it really, really well. A lot of us don't like change. A lot of us will be able to identify with these disciples of John the Baptist because we've experienced some of the very thoughts and and attitudes that we're going to see in these guys in just a moment. But it manifests pride. And it can happen in ministry. It can happen by people who call themselves Christians and believers in God. Pride can be manifest at times. So that's kind of your setting. That's kind of your uh, historical backdrop setting there. And now look at the scene, uh, the actual scene here in verse 25. There arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Now, I would have just jumped over that and said, okay, they had a conversation with a Jew about purification, except that word discussion is not your normal word for just a talk. It means they were having a heated argument. It means they were having a heated argument with a Jew, which was typical of many of the Jews. They didn't understand why John the Baptist used this method of purification. We Jews have our purification rituals. There was always that discussion and suspect of of John's method of purification. At least that's how they viewed it. But it's an argument, and I just couldn't help but look at that and think, an argument. How typical... Are theological arguments these days? How typical? Have you looked at the internet lately? Do you see the arguing that goes on between people who want to try and convince you so strongly of their viewpoint? They are not going to be content until they have gotten their point across and you buy into their point. I I only say this because, and this really isn't I can't read too much into this verse, into all that is going on here, but the whole idea of arguing is really, at times, pride manifested. Think of the number of, there are so many blogs that people will spend hours of time writing and commenting on and just going back and forth on endless debate on issues that are not all that important. I think that That is sort of characteristic of our day, these online discussions. And you see that, you see that 
thinking of these disciples and their pride, how that sometimes is a manifestation of pride. I just want to get my point across. I sometimes observe that leaders of the group aren't as zealous sometimes as their followers are in some of these debates. Sometimes the followers will take on methods that the leader would not take on because they are so much want to get their point across. Just reminded of Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, Timothy, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Verse 23 of 2 Timothy 2, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. I'm not saying that I know exactly what this conversation was about. There are some theological issues that are worth taking a stand on, dividing over, don't get me wrong. But there are some issues that just aren't worth the time of to continually arguing about never coming to any kind of resolution. Talk seems to be something our culture, especially I think online culture, is spends a lot of time debating and doing and it just goes on and on. You get bogged down and you get in dialogues with theological liberals that never end or never go anywhere. This point, we don't know exactly what the issue was. It could have been something like this. It could have been, why does, your, why does John the Baptist practice purification that way, as I said earlier? Or it could have even been, well, Jesus, this man Jesus is up there baptizing, and John's down here baptizing. Both of them are baptizing. Whose, whose purification is better? It could have been that. We don't know. But we're talking about something that really sets the scene for the next verse where these disciples go to John. As a result of that conversation in verse 25, they go to John, notice in verse 26, and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Notice he doesn't even say his name. He just says he, that guy. Rabbi, that guy who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. To whom you have testified. Let's talk about that. Here's here's their first pride point I would make about them. They're really into positioning. Let me just say it that way. They're They're into positioning. The one that you testified about. And they're offended because Jesus is violating the divine pecking order here. This is the guy you gave credibility to. This is the guy you spoke for. This is the guy that you talked about and told the people to prepare for. And look, he is doing what you do. He is doing what you, John, should be, he's, he's doing what you should be doing, or you're doing. You are being disrespected, is their attitude. You're our hero, and you're being disrespected because Jesus is doing what 
you are doing, and he's not respecting you by doing that. So that's a posturing and positioning type of thing that I think we can get into with pride. I heard a story about a man who went to a a denominational meeting, and he said when he came back from it, he felt very just unclean. He felt very uh, drained from it because he said all he could hear while he was at this denominational meeting, this church denominational meeting, all he could think about was how people were positioning for and, and for power or either just talking about how someone was failing somewhere else and how it would possibly open up an opportunity because they were failing, they were going to need somebody else in that. You get the idea what I'm talking about? Positioning. You're wanting the other guy to fail. You're wanting somebody to, you want to move into that position. You want that power. You want to maintain that role and you don't want anybody to threaten that. It's that idea. It's almost what they seem to be saying. This, this, that man, that guy is doing that. And folks, that scene I just said to you in that denominational meeting, that could be where you work. That could be in your school. That could be in your family. Always positioning and trying to come out on top. Just being preoccupied. Um, but that, that is not John the Baptist's priorities. We're going to see in a few moments. But how could this Jesus not acknowledge your priority, John, and our priority. We were here first. We were here first. Secondly, in the same verse, you see a possessiveness. Uh, he is baptizing. See that in verse 26? He is baptizing. Uh, not only is he positioning himself in such a way that he's disrespecting you, in verse 2, he is doing what you do. You're John the baptizer. Who is this guy? And what is he doing? And why is he doing this? Turn to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. This is a scene where Moses, who is the leader, the one who has led the children of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness, God spoke to Moses, and, God, and Moses spoke to the people. He was the prophet. He had the unique role of being a prophet of God. You see in Numbers 11, verse 24. Numbers 11, verse 24. You see a similar scene to what I'm talking about, this possessiveness of something. So Moses went out and told the people the, the words of the Lord. Verse 24. He also he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and stationed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke to him, and he took of the Spirit who was upon him and placed it upon the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. They just did it that one time and did not do it again. Verse 26, but two men had remained in the camp, and the name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad, and the Spirit rested upon them. And now they were among those who had been registered but had not gone out of the tent, and they prophesied. Notice, they prophesied in the camp. So, notice what happens. A young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. 
Why are you letting them do this? This is your job, Moses. This is not theirs. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. See, very possessive over Moses' unique role. Very similar, very possessive of John's unique role. Moses could have responded in a proud rage, but he's gracious and he says, he has a very God-focused response. Moses takes himself out of the middle and puts God in the middle. Moses takes his whatever, feelings, anything, out of, the, out of the focus and puts God at the focus. If this brings glory to God, uh, if this is something that God wants to do with other people, then may everybody speak divine revelation. And you know what? You can divide a church by possessiveness. You can. You can say, well, that is my ministry. That is my Sunday school class. That is my Bible study. That is my, my, whatever. You can get very possessive of something. I've always done that. I was doing that before you were born. That is mine. Uh, You know, that attitude, that possessiveness. Listen, ownership is a good thing. When you're a volunteer, ownership is a very good thing. Ownership means you're serious. Ownership means that you care about it. Ownership means you want to do it and you want to do it well. Possessiveness, though, is totally something else. Totally something else. Possessiveness crosses that line and becomes pride. It's just mine. It becomes very prideful. And finally, you see in verse 26, you see another point I would make. They compare. Notice it says at the end of verse 26, back in chapter 3 of John, John chapter 3, verse 26, says this, and all are coming to him. The end of verse 26, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. And this is just comparing. This is a sin of, uh, of comparing with others. Um, it's a rivalry. It becomes a competition. It's when you let uh, something become a competition rather than something that's, that's to honor and please God. All are coming to him. And that's not even a true statement, by the way. Notice back up at verse 22. There were a lot who were constantly coming to John still. You see that in verse 22. Is that correct? 22? 23. Verse 23. All, a lot were coming to John as well. But so, so listen, it's true that Jesus' ministry is expanding and John's ministry is diminishing somewhat. And for these disciples, that's just an unbearable thought. They can't handle this decline. And like I said, they view it as a competition that we've got to win. We can't have uh, all the people going to Jesus. Uh, and so they're comparing. Listen to Ecclesiastes 4. For I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. Rivalry. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. So comparing thoughts, rivalry, can happen in so many, so many contexts. 
Churches can divide over it. Uh, Men can divide friendships because they compare their accomplishments with others. Women can compare their children and their clothes, and their children can compare academics and sports and all of that stuff. That's all stuff that you feel like you're competing. It's all rooted in pride. It's all rooted in pride, and it will absolutely eat you up. (laughs) Eat you up. All of these things that are manifested by these disciples of John, if you stay focused on those things, the positioning and, and the, uh, the comparing and the possessiveness, it can just eat you up inside. It's mine. I want it. Uh, I, won't, I can't stand someone to be better. I envy. I'm filled with envy. I'm filled with greed and covetousness. I want that. All of those things. Those are sins, folks. Those are sins. They may be respectable sins, as one author says, but they're sins. They may be respectable because they're not adultery and thief, being a thief and murder and all, but they're, they're sins. They're sins of our hearts. And they're manifested in this way, as you see here, by what these men are saying. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you remember they were having divisions in the Corinthian church because they were dividing over teachers. We like Paul, we like Apollos, we like Jesus, we like, you know, we, they were dividing over teachers. Uh, they had quarrels about it. Our teacher is better than your teacher. The one you follow, the one we follow is better. In Philippians chapter 1, um, I remember when Paul, remember Paul is thrown into prison at, at the end of the book of Acts. He's getting under house arrest. He's allowed to have people come to him and he can preach to them. But while he's in prison, there are people going out preaching And they figure Paul is on the sidelines now and he's probably going to be killed in prison. And so now they're out there and they're out there preaching and uh, a lot of selfish motivation going on or whatever. Paul says, I don't care if it's pretense. I don't care what the reason is. Just so Christ is being preached. That was pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. Some preach out of selfish ambition, he says. I don't care. Just so Christ is being preached. And so, John the Baptist refuses to, to be led along by these guys, by his own disciples. John the Baptist refuses to be sucked into their pride and say, oh yeah, you're right. Oh yeah, you're right. I got to do something. Oh yeah, you're right. I should, I should feel differently than I do right now. No. Doesn't, look what he does. Look in verse 27, back in John chapter 3. John 3, verse 27. John answered and said, Notice, this will be, John viewed it as receiving. That's the word I can, it's right in the verse. A man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. They, they're focusing on what they have and about to lose. John the Baptist is focusing on what he's received. What he's received. Uh, uh, what, what I have received. They're they're battling, comparing all of those things. For, and this has happened to the Corinthian church. Listen to this. 
in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? This, this really attacks the whole self-esteem culture. Um, stop acting like you're autonomous. Stop thinking it's all about you and that all you have is due to you. That is how we think. We think the flesh thinks. The flesh thinks this is what I have. This is what I've done. This is what I've accomplished. And it's all about what I have, have done. And I've got to hold on to what I have and protect what I have. John did not view it that way. He viewed this has been received. This has had been given to me by God. All you care about is what you have. It's not, no, you don't receive anything. You don't, you don't have anything unless you received it. Even your ability to make money, even your ability to provide for your family, even your ability to do the gifts and talents as you have, they, they, you received that. So humility is not preoccupied with what it has but what it, or what it considers as its own, but it's receiving. It's a gift from God. That's what he says in verse 27. A man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. And the second point you would make on that same verse in verse 27, it's been given to him from heaven. In other words, God is sovereign. God is in control. God is the one that gives. God is the one who's given what I have. He's given what Jesus has. He's given to what all of us have. He is sovereign in what he has provided. John is occupied with that sovereignty over the success. They want the numbers, and they don't want to lose the crowds heard a pastor tell me years ago, he says, don't worry about the, the breadth of your ministry. Don't worry about the ministry out there. Just worry about the depth, your own depth with God. Quit trying to worry about numbers. Just worry about going deeper with God. God is sovereign over that. God is the one that works in ministry. And so John is saying, the Lord gives the followers to my ministry. If God takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what Job said, didn't he? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's just the open hand reception. I get, I receive from God. If God wants to take it, then God can take it. So pride is possessive. Pride compares and humility doesn't have that kind of preoccupation as we see with John. God is sovereign. God is the one that gives. You know, and you can talk about sovereignty all day, but to live, live like you believe it is a different thing. You can, you can say, I believe in the sovereignty of God, but to, to live like that, to really believe that, where you act on it and to live it out, to live like you believe it, that's, that's different. A lot of us believe in the sovereignty of God. We talk that talk, but this is really living it. God is sovereign in what he provides and what he takes away. And then finally, verse 28, you yourselves are my witnesses. This is chapter 3, verse 28. You see another quality here. I just think um, 
This is a good reminder, too. He reminds himself, I should say, in verse 28, You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. If you were to go back and read in John 1, this is exactly what John the Baptist said. They ask him, are you the Christ? No, I'm not the Christ. I'm just a voice. I'm not the Christ. John is just, in this statement in verse 28, just a reminder to himself and to his disciples. This is a reminder of what we are about. This is what I am about. I have to remind myself, I didn't get caught up in all the success of the ministry that I forgot what I was doing here. No, this is what I'm about. I was always to be one who would simply come and be a voice, one who was sent ahead of him to prepare the way. I'm just a trumpeter telling the people that he has arrived. Just had to go back earlier in his ministry and remind himself of that commitment that joyful commitment that he made early in his ministry. Just because things have been so popular and the masses have come out to see him, they haven't changed that mission one bit. And you think about that, you think about that, I just think about the statement, maybe you've started working somewhere and you had a manager you were working for and when you started you hadn't, you were willing to submit to that manager. As time has gone on, you don't want to submit anymore. And you ask yourself, why? Or you, a wife, I want to submit to this husband, this man, to be my husband. And now, as marriage has gone along, you say, I don't want to submit anymore. Why? I think those are questions we have to ask. We have to remind ourselves, what, what commitments did we make in the past that should be a uh, should be affecting the present. You've got to remind ourselves or we're going to find ourselves competing with everybody, competing with those who are in authority over me. It just becomes a competition. So he's learning from his past. He's reminding himself of his past and the disciples of his past that, hey, this is, this is our role. We, su- we humbly submit to Christ. And then finally, you see in verse 29, this interesting parable that he gives. Verse 29, uh, just, just embraces the role of serving Christ. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. What John is saying in this illustration, it would be very bizarre, and I'm not saying this doesn't happen, I'm sure it does, it would be very bizarre if a best man tried to steal the show at a wedding. You've probably been to one, I should say that, you've probably been to one where that's happened, but it'd be bizarre where the best man tries to do something to draw attention away from the bride and the bridegroom. And that's what he's saying, my job is not to be the bridegroom. My job is to be the best man at this wedding. My job is to support. My job is to um, prepare, help prepare for the wedding. My job, and especially in this context, the the, the best man or the friend of the bridegroom would be the one who would do all the details for getting the marriage, uh, the wedding prepared for. John says, I am happy to do this 
for Jesus. I'm glad to be in the shadows. I'm just highlighting for us this morning John's humility. I'm not one who's going to compare. I'm not one who's going to compete. I'm not one who is going to sit back and wish I was doing his role instead of the role I have been. I, I am, I'm here to do. And I gladly submit to this role. This is a subordinate role, and he says, I accept the subordinate role. Not about self-promotion, not about notoriety. Uh, John and Jesus were given roles from heaven, and John is sovereignly willing to submit to the role that he has been given. No grumbling, no complaining. John the Baptist, what a rebuke to his disciples. John says, him first, me second, verse 30. He must increase, and I must decrease. No tug-of-war here. No tug-of-war for preeminence. No tug-of-war. That's self-denial. 2 Corinthians 4.5 says this, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived, and we got a glimpse of why this morning. He never wrote a lot of books. He was not popular in society. He was not uh, uh, winning awards. He was not asked to speak at conferences. He did not have a popular website, anything like, things like that. He, wasn't, he was the least He was the least in the kingdom of God. He was humble, and I'm always reminded of the verse in Peter, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. May God, may that be our prayer. God, identify pride in my heart. God, identify uh, comparing, identify uh, resentfulness and bitterness, identify a competitive attitude with those over me, versus attitude and heart of submission. God, re- reveal in me a, a, a just kicking against your sovereignty rather than submitting to your sovereignty. I'm kicking against it all the time. I don't like your sovereignty. I don't like how you have designed my life. I don't like how you have designed the situations and circumstances of my life. God, help me to submit to your sovereign hand. These are the attitudes of John the Baptist. I think we can learn a lot from that this morning. The next section is going to be why. John is going to tell us why Christ must increase. Verses 31 through 36. We'll look at that next time. But he's going to conclude with this verse. He who believes in the Son, verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Back to the purpose of the book, that you might believe in the Son of God. Not John the Baptist. John the Baptist can't give me eternal life, but the Son can. And that's why John kept pointing everybody to the Son. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for the the practicalness of this today. Thank you, Father, for being able to see our need to be humble, our need to... uh, Ask you, God, to help us 
to be self-forgetful, to not put ourselves in front of you or others. May we love you and love others. And that's the key to that, God, is to get our eyes off of us and onto you and to them. We thank you and praise you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.